Welcome to Public Health On Call, a new podcast from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Our focus is the novel coronavirus. I'm Josh Sharfstein, a faculty member at Johns Hopkins and also a former secretary of Maryland's Health Department. Our goal with this podcast is to bring evidence and experts to help you understand today's news about the novel coronavirus and what it means for tomorrow. If you have questions, you can email them to publichealthquestion at jhu.edu. That's publichealthquestion at jhu.edu for future podcast episodes. Today, Stephanie Desmond interviews Chris Byrer, the Desmond M. Tutu Professor of Public Health and Human Rights at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. They explore how dangerous coronavirus infection is in our overcrowded jails, prisons, and immigration detention centers, and they look at what solutions may be available. Let's listen. I'm here today with Chris Byrer, an infectious diseases epidemiologist at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Today, we're going to talk about how coronavirus is impacting prisons, jails, and other places where lots of people are detained together. Chris, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Um, I'm wondering if you could talk about how this pandemic is impacting folks in those facilities. Well, absolutely. Uh, And the first thing I should say, uh, Stephanie, is that we know that this is a problem internationally. There were early on outbreaks uh, of COVID-19 disease in Chinese prisons and detention facilities. Uh, There's one underway right now on Rikers Island, major detention facility in New York. Uh, But there's some important information about the United States and prisons, jails, and detention centers in the U.S. that makes these populations particularly vulnerable and of particular concern in the COVID-19 outbreak. And the first thing we have to acknowledge is that no country has more people in prison and detention in the United States. Uh, We have the highest incarceration rate per capita in the world, over 2.3 million people in prisons and jails. And that accounts to about 25% of all of the global people currently incarcerated, despite our being such a smaller uh, proportion of the world's overall population. So we are particularly vulnerable and we take liberty away from our fellow citizens more than any other country and society. The second thing to say is that while there are people in certainly federal prisons and state penitentiaries who uh, have been charged and tried and convicted of felonies, we also have an enormous number of people in jails and detention who are there for what are essentially administrative misdemeanors, things like unpaid fees, unpaid fines, failure to meet bail. In some cases, failure to meet bail as low as $200. So these are people who are being exposed needlessly to the the risks that we know about in closed settings, uh, really for administrative reasons. And there is no justification for that in the face of the pandemic. I would also add that we have in the U.S., mostly because of mandatory sentencing laws uh, in the war on drugs, Uh, and the so-called three strikes you're out laws, the tough on crime legislation, a number of people serving very lengthy prison sentences who are now aging and elderly and who have many of the underlying chronic conditions that we're so concerned about in terms of COVID-19, things like chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, diabetes, hypertension, and just aging. Of course, with COVID-19, the death rates go up dramatically after age 70. 
And so that population is particularly vulnerable. And again, uh, the U.S. has more of these aging people in our prisons than any other country. I would also add that uh, we know that prisons, jails, and detention facilities have seen multiple outbreaks in the past of other infectious diseases, and particularly those infectious diseases that are spread through respiratory and droplet spread. So we have multiple cases of influenza A, uh, of TB, of multidrug-resistant TB, which is called MDR-TB, that was a prominent outbreak uh, in the states in prisons and jails in the 80s and 90s, uh, but also other infections like uh, MRSA, methicillin-resistant staph aureus, which has had major outbreaks in prisons, uh, and of course, viral hepatitis. If you think about what we're saying to the American people about what we all need to do to protect ourselves and each other from further spread of COVID-19, it's, of course, a social distancing, trying to stay uh, six feet or two meters away uh, from other people, hand washing with soap and water or sanitizer after encounters and being out in public. Uh, just think about what those messages sound like if you are detained and incarcerated, where you can't socially distance, where prisoners uh, in, in many jails uh, and prisons in the United States have a copay for soap. They have to pay for soap with their relatively very low, uh, in fact, wages that they make in different kinds of prison wage schemes. Uh, and the soap costs more than it does outside the facility. And hand sanitizer, particularly Purell, but many others, uh, has alcohol in it. So it is banned in prisons and jails. So people don't have access to hand sanitizer. So the kinds of things that are just basic hygiene and basic public health protections, we have taken away from these people. And we should remember that this has been done in the interest of public safety. If, in fact, prisons and jails and detention centers are increasing people's likelihood of acquiring COVID, uh, and we can see that already on Rikers Island. Then who is being protected here and from what? This is really unconscionable in a, in a COVID-19 epidemic situation. So I understand, obviously, um, what you're saying is it's very difficult to keep prisoners safe inside the jail and prisons. Will we be safe if we let them out? I mean, some of these people have been convicted of, of serious crime. So I think no one is talking about uh, early release or release of prisoners who are a threat to public security, of course. Uh, but as I said, many of the people that we're talking about, particularly in the jail system, are there because of administrative uh, issues and because they are poor and can't make bail and can't pay fees and fines. So they're, they are not at all a threat to public safety, but in fact, we are threatening their health and well-being. I think that's even more the case when we think about the people who are in detention uh, in the immigration detention system. So we have roughly, uh, on any given day, 50, 52,000 uh, people, so 50,000 to 52,000 people in immigration detention, but about half a million people a year are cycling through that system. Those facilities are crowded, they're unhygienic, there is uh, absolutely no ability to do the kinds of social distancing and hygiene that we want to see. Uh, but let's remember that until relatively recently, people who were seeking asylum in the U.S., including those who came into the, into the country illegally, uh, were typically briefly detained, given a court date, 
And then if they had family in the U.S., were released to their family until they came back for those court dates, until those hearings. Um, it's this administration that has insisted on putting these people in prisons and detention facilities, and by the way, separating children from their parents. So these policies actually uh, are not in any way, shape, or form uh, being imposed to protect Americans, although that has been some of the arguments, but they are clearly exposing these people. We know this is the case because last year there were outbreaks of influenza A in these same immigration facilities. And in May of last year, a 16-year-old boy died of the same complication uh, of COVID-19 that you can die of from influenza, and that is acute respiratory distress syndrome. Now, this child was an unaccompanied minor. He had a flu-like syndrome. In fact, he had the flu. He was seen by a nurse practitioner in the evening. He was given one oral dose and then locked in a cell, and he died alone that night of ARDS. So if you can die in an immigration detention facility of ARDS from influenza, you can die there from COVID-19. And that is just simply unconscionable. There's no reason that, that a child like that needs to be locked up behind bars and denied medical care through the night. So we have to really think about that as a country. What are we doing for the least among us, for the most vulnerable? Who are we protecting by locking these people up and having people who are no threat to public security, but who are being threatened uh, by being detained in these unhygienic and crowded facilities? And that's why we've been part of a movement working with lawyers and federal defenders uh, and the American Civil Liberties Union all over the country trying to work with governors, with cities and counties to ramp up as quickly as possible the release of people who do not need to be detained for the public safety. And I have to say that this has been going well in a number of places. Unfortunately, it has not been going well in Maryland. We just recently had a, an opinion piece in the Washington Post on this issue, urging our governor, who's been a leader in the COVID response in so many other areas, uh, to really consider seriously releasing people from detention who don't need to be there. How is uh, COVID-19 getting into these facilities? Well, one thing that people often think about is that somehow a jail or a detention facility or an immigration facility is hived off and separated from the community around it. Uh, nothing could be further from the truth. All of these facilities have uh, large civilian staffs. They typically have three eight-hour shifts every 24 hours. So there's three rounds of people going in and out of these facilities. Many of those people are low-wage workers. Prison work, jail work, detention center work is not terribly well paid. They're using public transportation often to get to work. They're going to and from their homes, mixing with families. And as we have just seen in the Rikers Island outbreak, in the early round of cases, the majority of people infected are workers in the prison system, prisoners somewhat less infected. We have very good data from the prison outbreaks in Wuhan in China, which is, of course, the origin of this particular outbreak, that it was people working in the prison and coming in and out of it who introduced COVID-19 uh, into the prison population, and then there was explosive spread. If prisoners get sick, are the prisons capable of caring for them? This is a pretty serious disease, or can be. 
So we have, of course, a, a very heterogeneous mixed bag of health systems, right? So people who are in federal penitentiaries and state penitentiaries, generally speaking, have reasonable access to health care. There's a recognition that when we take somebody's liberty away and they get a felony conviction, uh, that we take responsibility for their health. But the complication of COVID-19, which leads to the most serious uh, illnesses and which, of course, uh, leads to death and depending on which country, somewhere between 1% and 7% of the people who get infected, is, as I said, acute respiratory distress syndrome. And that needs often intensive care, needs oxygen, it needs intubation, people need to be on ventilators, and that the system just simply does not have that capacity. So typically when somebody in a detention facility needs intensive care, they go into a civilian facility that is equipped to handle prisoners. But of course, they need two guards from the prison to go with them. So very quickly, you can see that if we have a large number of cases in the facility, that will overwhelm their personnel and their staff. It's also, of course, the case that the immigration detention facilities where so many migrants are being held or uh, undocumented uh, immigrants, these facilities were in no way set up to manage the complexity of patients uh, with COVID-19 disease. And we saw that, uh, as I said earlier, with influenza, where we had preventable deaths of a, you know, of a child in immigration detention from ARDS. That, that, I think, is all the evidence we need to know to understand that they are not adequate, and we shouldn't be asking them to be adequately equipped to do this. It sounds like all of these detention centers are really the antithesis of social distancing, and we don't give them op any opportunity to distance from one another. That's right. It's, it's, uh, it's enormously challenging to do that. Uh, many of the overcrowded prisons and jails in the U.S., for example, have dormitory-style uh, sleeping arrangements for the general population. They're typically two feet away from each other, nowhere near the six feet away from each other, crowded dormitory settings. And that a response very often from the authorities in these facilities is to say, oh, we have a disease outbreak, let's lock down, lock everybody in their cells, try and socially isolate through that enforcement mechanism. That's, of course, enormously stressful for people. It's very hard to maintain. And of course, they also want to try and reduce infection rates by stopping family visitation. It's very similar to what's been happening with nursing homes, where people are not allowed to visit their families. That led to prison riots in Italy when those restrictions were enforced. We should also remember that it's very often family members and loved ones of people in detention who bring things like salt, uh, soap, deodorant, toothpaste, tampons, you know, the things that prisoners so often need. So there are real concerns uh, with trying to reduce those restrictions. And of course, you know, the point of incarceration is supposed to be rehabilitation. And all the evidence shows us that people are less likely to be rehabilitated if they don't have contact with their families and the people that they are going to go be going home to when they leave. Almost everybody eventually does leave these facilities. So the longer term consequences of interrupting family visits are also part of the equation here, part of what has to be considered. You mentioned undocumented migrants in detention centers, but um, generally it feels like these are folks who could uh, unwittingly spread the, uh, the virus because they're not seeking health care. They're afraid to seek health care. 
So this is a very important population. And, you know, we have perhaps 2.3 million or so people right now in detention, prisons and jails. We have about 50,000 migrants in detention. We have an estimated 11 million undocumented migrants out in the community. That's roughly 3% of all the people physically in this country. And we should say, it's pretty obvious, but it bears repeating that the virus doesn't care about your immigration status. Right? The virus doesn't care if you are a citizen or not. So these folks are just as vulnerable as anybody else. They're also very vulnerable in the current economic crisis because they typically work illegal jobs and under-the-table jobs, and therefore they're very, very vulnerable to lose their jobs and not have access to the benefits and the support that, that uh, people legally in the system have. But more importantly, they are very anxious about seeking health care and were so, but more recently, with the public charge policy of the current administration, have even more reason to avoid health care. The public charge idea is basically that families who have family members who use things like food stamps, which is a, a public charge, can risk the immigration status of the other people in their family. So that is a huge disincentive for people to engage. And the, the challenge there is, of course, that people need information. You know, the, the, the common thing that you, we all hear, which is that if you are sick and you do have symptoms and you feel like you're getting sicker, contact your healthcare provider. These people do not have that healthcare provider. How are they supposed to find out what to do and care for their sick family members? And if we have people out in the community who have COVID-19 infection or disease and who are not seeking health care, then they, of course, are at risk of complications. They're at risk of transmission to their other household members. And, and we are at risk of not being able to control spread in, in this country. If 3% of your population is off the grid and not able to access health care, that is a risk to epidemic control. Well, Chris, thank you so much for joining me. I really learned a lot. Well, thank you. I appreciate it, and I appreciate your attention to this issue. I, I'd just like to say that I, I think, you know, we, we really, in a time like this and facing this pandemic as a country, it's a time for solidarity, and it's a time for thinking about the least among us and the people who are the most vulnerable and the people who have been detained and lost their liberty on our behalf. And we have a responsibility to those people. They're part of our community. They're part of the human family. And they deserve protection as much as anybody else. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Public Health on Call, a new podcast from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Please send questions to be covered in future podcasts to publichealthquestion at jhu.edu. This podcast is produced by Josh Sharpstein, Lindsay Smith-Rogers, and Lamare Morales. Audio production by Niall Owen McCusker and Spencer Greer, with support from Chip Hickey. Distribution by Nick Moran. Thank you for listening.